Mark, could you come up and preach for us? Well, good morning. It is uh, great to be back here and to see so many familiar faces and a lot of new faces uh, also. My thanks to uh, Jim, certainly, and to uh, Ed, uh, Clow, and Josh uh, for the invitation to be here uh, with you this morning. We're going to be looking at the uh, opening verses of Mark, really Mark's prologue, uh, but before we begin, I'll tell you a story. The, the, um, around the turn of the 20th century, so about the year 1899, a young uh, curate in the Church of England approached uh, William Stubbs the then Bishop of Oxford, for some advice about preaching. The bishop was silent for a few moments and then replied, preach about God and preach about 20 minutes. So that is my goal uh, this morning. I think that's still good advice. Preach about God and preach about 20 minutes. In many ways, it's fair to say that the Gospels are the heart of the Bible. The Old Testament points forward to Christ, and the scripture following the Gospels, the book of Acts, the letters, the book of Revelation, look back at Christ, working out all the implications of his coming. The Gospels are the heart of the Bible. But before we actually turn to these opening verses of Mark, it's important to consider the context, the historical context, which is that the Jews of Jesus' day were living under foreign rule and had been for several centuries. And the worst thing about this was not high taxation or alien laws or even the sheer oppression of their rulers. The worst thing was that uh, the people who ruled Israel were pagans. You see, if Israel was God's people, why were pagans ruling over her? Now, this state of affairs had existed ever since the Babylonians had entered Jerusalem in 586 B.C., destroyed it, and carried away many of the Jews into exile. Remember, that's how the prophet Daniel landed up in, ended up in Babylon. That's how the priest Ezekiel ended up in Babylon. Now, although many Jews ultimately returned to the promised land from exile, from Babylon, so in one sense, geographically at least, the exile had ended, many of the Jews continued to believe that a kind of theological state of exile continued because they continued to be dominated by pagan rule, Roman rule at the time of Jesus. And when we think back over Old Testament history, we can understand why the Jews were troubled by pagan rule. From at least Genesis chapter 12, God's covenant with Abraham, God had purposed to deal with the problems in his creation through Israel. Israel was to be the means through which the world would be saved. As Jesus put it in John's gospel, salvation is of the Jews. And this salvation would be accomplished through Israel's history reaching a great climax, in which God would visit his people, save them from their enemies, and bring his peace and justice and truth to bear upon the whole world, restoring and renewing all of creation. In fact, the last of the Old Testament prophetic books, Malachi, actually points to this. Malachi chapter 3, and verse 1, says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? Then in Malachi 4, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes." Well, after Malachi, the people hoped and prayed and waited for this Elijah figure to come. 
The years went by, messianic fervor intensified, and then kind of like a cannon blast, Mark's gospel opens. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The beginning of the good news, the gospel, is news of Jesus the Messiah, the spreading of a message about him. News, by the way, that would have been passed on by word of mouth in a largely preliterate world. Now, this first verse signals to us that what follows, however full of suffering and sorrow, is not bad news or tragedy, but good news. Good news about Jesus. The gospel for Mark lies in the story to come, its words and events. And this first verse also signals to us, it reminds us, that what we proclaim to the world is not an idea or a doctrine, not a set of rules, not even a moral way of life. That's not what we proclaim to the world. What we proclaim to the world is Jesus, a man who came from heaven to set all things right, to fix that which is broken, to forgive sin, and to open the way to eternal life for all who believe. What we proclaim to the world is Jesus, and the gospel is the story of that one life that explains the stories of us all. Well, let's look now uh, at the text, and we can divide it in this way. Verses 1 through 8 focus on preparation for the coming of Jesus, and verses 9 through 13 focus on the preparation of Jesus himself. In other words, the people had to be prepared for his coming, and he had to be prepared for the work God had called him to. So we'll look first at the preparation for the coming of Jesus. Now you can see in these first three verses that Mark locates the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah in the prophecy of Isaiah hundreds of years earlier. So although Jesus' coming is a new thing, it was not unanticipated. It was not without advance warning. It was not an afterthought on God's part. It was something for which God had planned and prepared during the long years of the Old Testament. Now the quote from Isaiah is not all from Isaiah, actually. It's a composite quotation. You have to remember how Mark might have, might have got here, right? He doesn't have a Bible in front of him like we do, so he's flipping around looking at verses. Right? The Bible wasn't even versed and chaptered until many, many years later. It's a composite quotation from Exodus 23.20. So he's working off of memory. 23.20, Malachi 3.1, and Isaiah 40, uh, verse 3. But all texts that in early Judaism were associated with an Elijah figure who was to prepare the way for the age of salvation. Now these opening words, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, are actually from Exodus. And they're addressed to Israel in the wilderness. While the rest of the quotation refers to one who announces the coming of God himself in salvation and judgment. And according to Isaiah, the wilderness is the place where the way is to be prepared for the coming of God. As in the Exodus, the wilderness is the place where God would once again act to deliver his people. And John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness. Mark clearly identifying John as the messenger, the voice of one crying out, this Elijah-like figure. Unless we be in any doubt about that, Mark makes it perfectly clear in verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. The details of John's dress and diet 
mark him out as a man of the wilderness. We know this from Leviticus 11. And the garment of camel's hair is an indication that he was a prophet, something we know from the book of Zechariah. And then the reference to the leather belt is an almost exact echo of the description of Elijah in 2 Kings 1.8, suggesting again that John is Elijah the prophet sent to call Israel to repent before what scripture calls the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so John appears, this Elijah-like figure in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And friends, what this means is that God's hour has struck. The time is fulfilled. God is on the move. God is on his way. Now, the call to repent, I know it, it sounds kind of archaic in, uh, you know, 21st century New York. It's a little old-fashioned, maybe a little out of touch. But the call to repentance is not at all a strange call, would not have been a strange call to Jewish ears in the first century. John's call to repentance is not at all unusual. It was actually a common enough prophetic demand. It goes all through the Bible, the call to repent. What is unusual is, John, is that John appears to be offering forgiveness without sacrifice being offered in the temple. Remission of sins without any connection to the whole sacrificial system in Jerusalem. All of which foreshadows the replacement of the temple and the whole Jewish system and looks forward to the once for all sacrifice of Christ. Well, in any case, the people of Israel recognized John as bringing a word from the Lord and they all went out to him to be baptized. Look at verse 5. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, verse 5 is not mere hyperbole. The verse indicates that John accomplished his purpose in preparing the people for the coming of God. So in summary, John's task was to make a road for God. His method was by preaching and the content of his preaching was an uncompromising call to men and women to prepare themselves for the divine coming. Now, friends, it's an old cliche, but it bears asking, I think. If you knew for a certainty that you would face God's judgment very soon, what would you do in the short time before then? Remember what's happening here. The people believe, based on the Old Testament, that God himself is coming in salvation and judgment. That's what the Old Testament teaches. That's what the people are believing. What would you do if you knew that God's judgment was coming very soon? Would you amend your life? Would you turn from the things that fall short of God's highest and best for you? Would you turn from your sins? That's the kind of response the Baptist's preaching aimed at. To prepare the people for the coming of Messiah Jesus, John called them to come through the waters of baptism and be free. And he still issues that call. We are, all of us, to leave behind the world of sin in which we so often live. The world of folly. The world of rebelling against the living God. Now, you know, not much has changed in the last 2,000 years, right? Israel in the first century, and you and I today, often look in the wrong direction, we go in the wrong direction. But it's time, Scripture says, to turn around and go the right way. That's what repentance means. In other words, it's time to wake up, wake up to God's reality. Stop dreaming and wake up to God's reality. Why? Because one more powerful than John has come. 
one greater, one so far above John that he's not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of this greater one's sandal. Now, I didn't realize that's a strange expression. It's a strange expression until we understand that the action of unfastening sandals was regarded by the Jews as the lowest and most menial of all the tasks performed by a slave. In fact, it's said in the Talmud that a disciple must do for his teacher everything a slave will do for his master except this one thing. But John the Baptist says he's not worthy to do that one thing for his successor, which simply emphasizes the vast superiority of this coming one. So notice then that John didn't only baptize. He didn't only call for repentance. He proclaimed that there was a stronger one coming after him. And this stronger one, this one more powerful, would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that's the Spirit as a cleansing agent, parallel to water baptism. The Spirit as the agent of ultimate cleansing from sin. In other words, it's through Jesus' life and death that we receive the baptism with the Spirit the salvation and deliverance promised for the new age. Now let's take a step back. Okay, that's, that's a lot to digest perhaps. Let's take a step back and think about this. All that we've talked about so far, it implies three things. First, the coming near of God's dominion, God's rule, has to be announced. It was true then, it's true today. It has to be announced because its appearance in the person and work of Jesus the Messiah is simply not evident to everyone. The coming near of God's rule has to be announced. I'm sure many of you know, or most of you know, right? Each of the four Gospels contains a commission. A commission by Jesus to his followers to make more followers. To proclaim his name, to bear witness to him in the resurrection. And that's what the book of Acts is largely about, the expansion of the church, and again, largely by word of mouth. You know, study after study shows still that the most effective means of reaching people is by word of mouth evangelism. It's not through billboards and ads on television, on the internet and whatnot. They may reach a few people, but still the most effective way of growing the church, of, of reaching people with the gospel, is word of mouth evangelism. And this is the task of evangelism we're speaking about, of telling the good news to others. Now, one contemporary theologian has said that the evangelistic work of declaring the gospel is the primary ministry that the church has toward the world. And friends, now is the time to speak to our generation, to bear witness to Jesus and the resurrection, to declare the coming near of God's rule in the person of his son. The coming near of God's rule in the person of his son has to be announced. Second implication, in order to respond appropriately to the coming near of God's rule in the person of his son, you have to turn around or turn back. You have to repent. Now, when you bring repentance into an evangelistic uh, chat, I couldn't tell you exactly. But that's a non-negotiable aspect of evangelism. You have to turn around, you have to repent. That was the call of John the Baptist. It was also the early preaching of Jesus. It's not in our text, but chapter 1 and verse 15, when Jesus begins his public ministry, he says, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe in the gospel. Repentance is the appropriate response to the inbreaking of God's rule. And third, not only must you leave behind past practices, past orientations, 
But you have to face the future, the days ahead, in a radically new way. You have to believe the gospel. The good news about the inbreaking of God's rule, you have to believe it. Why is that? Why do you have to believe? Well, because without faith, the rule of God may come. The rule of God has come. But without faith, you'll get no personal benefit or help from that coming. In other words, you have to respond to the coming of God as an individual. And as you see happening in Mark's gospel, as it continues to unfold, that's what you see with the calling of individuals to become followers of Jesus. Individuals who embark on a life of discipleship. So John prepared the people for the coming of Jesus the Messiah. Now let's turn to verses 9 through 13, the preparation of Jesus himself. Look at 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the river Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. His former Anglican Bishop Tom Wright has said the whole Christian gospel could be summed up right here. And I quote, when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. And wasn't that what some of our songs were getting at earlier? You know, clothed in his righteousness. God sees you not as you are in yourself, but as you are in Jesus Christ. Now, it sometimes seems impossible, especially if you've never had this kind of affirmation and support from your earthly parents. But it's true. God looks at you, a baptized and believing Christian, and says, you are my beloved child. And this is true for one very simple but very profound reason. Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah represents his people. He represents us. Remember how we were all in Adam We all fell in Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. He represents us. In some sense, then, what's true of Jesus is true of us. What God says to Jesus, he says to us. And friends, you need to hear, we all need to hear, these words of love and acceptance as addressed to us personally. And let those words change us and mold us and make us to become the people God longs for us to be. Now, we're told in verse 1, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, which simply means the anointed one. In verses 9 through 11, tell how Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, marked out in a unique way as God's son. But notice verse 10. When he came up out of the water, immediately he he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove, and the voice came from heaven. Seeing the heavens opening or being torn open and the spirit descending is what Jesus alone saw. Someone once said, almost as if an invisible curtain was pulled back and Jesus was standing in the presence of a different reality altogether. And friends, this is a reminder to us that the unseen world is real. The unseen world is real. Now, there's a great illustration of this in the Old Testament book, of 2 Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 6, we're told that the king of Syria, 
is making war on Israel. But the king of Israel was warned repeatedly by Elisha the prophet of the Syrians' plans. And so Israel escaped attack multiple times. Well, you can imagine the king of Syria is enraged, right? He thinks that people in his own army are traitors and giving away his plans. But he's told, no, O king, it's Elisha the prophet who actually knows your plans. And so the king wants to find and seize Elisha. And he learns where he is. He's in the city of Dothan. Dothan is north of Jerusalem in the region of Samaria. And so the king of Syria sent horses and chariots and a great army and surrounded the city at night. Well, when Elisha's servant rose early in the morning and went out, he saw the Syrian army all around the city. And he runs to Elisha and says, Master, what shall we do? That's all he sees is the Syrian army. And we pick it up in 2 Kings 6.16. Elisha says to him, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now what could he possibly mean? You look out and all you see is the opposition. That's all you see, the Syrian army. You don't see anything else. What's Elisha seeing here? Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The Syrian army is there, yes, but the armies of the Lord are present as well. He just couldn't see them until the Lord opened his eyes. Friends, the unseen world is real. The psalmist also shows an awareness of the unseen world when he encourages the angels in many different psalms, particularly in Psalm 148. He says, praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. There are times probably in the church when we read these verses and you've got to think about this. We're, we're urging angels to praise God. You don't see them, but you believe that they, are, they exist. They're real. The unseen world is real. And a good deal of Christian faith is a matter of learning to live by this different reality even when we can't see it. Sometimes the curtain is drawn back and we see or hear what's really going on. But most of the time we walk by faith not by sight, but make no mistake, the unseen world is real. So Jesus is baptized, he is anointed and empowered by the Spirit, he hears the words of divine approval, and then what? Verse 12, he is immediately driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, driven to a place and time of testing and difficulty. And notice the text, It's the spirit who casts Jesus into the wilderness where he is endangered by wild animals and endangered by a powerful adversary. But notice what else is there. The angels are there also ministering to Jesus. And here it's important to remember for us that times of trial, times of difficulty involve both danger and assistance. There are wild animals in the wilderness, yes, but there are also the angels. We have a powerful adversary, yes, but there are also the angels. And friends, in the hour of need, in times of testing and great difficulty, God does not abandon us, but God provides extra help, extra sustenance, extra strength so that we can persevere. Ministering angels sent to serve the elect the unseen world. Friends, God may put each one of us to the test in this year. 
but you can rest assured that he will provide the resources we need to endure and to persevere. And Jesus is now ready to embark upon his public ministry as it unfolds in the remainder of this gospel. And friends, as you go forth during the remainder of this year to fulfill your calling, your vocation, whatever it is, you can rest assured of God's love for you, his watchful care over you, and his provision for you every step of the way. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that you are a talking God, that you speak to us. We thank you, Father, that you were faithful to your promises of such a long standing. And when the time was fulfilled, when the time had fully come, you sent the Lord Jesus to be with us, to suffer and die for us. And Father, we pray that you would um, continue to use us to achieve your great purposes. We pray that you would speak to us and assure us of your love, your acceptance, your forgiveness, and your provision for us through this earthly uh, pilgrimage. Through Christ we ask. Amen.